Thank you for joining us for this week's message from Highland Park Baptist Church. The preaching and teaching ministry of Highland Park is led by our pastor, Dr. Jeremy Wallace. Our desire is to help you grow in your faith so that you can better glorify God, make disciples, and love others. To learn more, visit us at hpbc.church. Now, here's this week's message. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them and turn with me, Will, to Revelation chapter 3, the passage we read just a few moments ago. Revelation chapter 3. I want to start by asking a thought-provoking question, maybe a challenging question. Change or die? What if you were given that choice? Change or die? What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure, perhaps say a doctor, stood before you and told you that you had to make the difficult and enduring changes in, in your life or that that life would come to an abrupt and early end. Could you change? I mean, would you be willing to change? When it mattered most, would you be able to make the changes required to give life? We're going to come back to that question a little bit later in the message, but the specific title of the message this morning is Wake Up. I thought about yelling it real loud just to kind of start, but I figured, you know what, I better not. Wake up. Most of you are aware that we are in a study through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. We're kind of on the home stretch, just a couple left. But the one this morning, the letter this morning, I think is especially powerful in, in what Christ says to the church, especially impactful. And so, um, I really just want to dive right in. If you have one of your bulletins on the back of it, you'll notice an outline. Let me encourage you to fill that in as we go through it. But I want to jump right in. We've already read the text. Um, and so we're just going to draw our points from this. And the points are structured in a very practical, applicable way. So as we go through this, I think you'll be able to easily grasp hold to truths and be able to look at your heart and look at your life. And that's what I want to challenge you to do is, is look at your heart and look, look at your life and say, what changes do I need to make? So if you're taking notes, diving right in, number one, I want us to see that there can be a difference between reputation and reality. There is a difference or can be a difference between reputation and reality. This letter that Christ writes to the church at Sardis, look at with me, if you will, at verse 1, about halfway through the, the verse. Here's what Christ says. I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Their reputation was different from their reality. And what I want us to understand this morning as we go through the text, that there is a difference or there can be a difference between our reputation and our reality. They have a reputation of being alive, but the reality is they are dead. And this is true for churches as well as individuals. There are churches that have a reputation for being alive, but the reality is they're dead. And the reason those churches have a reputation for being alive, but the reality is they're dead, is because they are filled with church members who have a reputation of being alive, but the reality is they're dead. We're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I want to break this down. How, how do we see this difference between reputation and reality? Several subpoints that kind of help break this down for us. Here's the first one. A, activity and busyness do not always equal life. Activity and busyness do not always equal life. You see in verse 1, Christ says, I know your works. And then again in verse 2, he looks at them and says, I have not found your works complete before me. 
So Christ looks to this church. He says, I see your works. I see the activity and I see the busyness. I see that you're working to the point of exhaustion. But what he wanted them to understand is that it is possible. Get this. It is possible to be active and busy and involved in working, but still be spiritually dead. And perhaps that's where some of you are this morning. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, you're active and you're busy and you're ministering and you're serving. But the reality is you have the reputation of being alive because of all the busyness and all the activity that you're doing. But when Christ looks at your life and he looks at your mind and he looks at your heart, what he sees is that the activity and the busyness does not equal life. I mean, the spiritual reality this morning is it is possible to be active and be spiritually on life support. To be physically active, physically doing, physically busy, but spiritually on the verge of death. And it's possible that you're here this morning and you have been so busy, you are exhausted. But one of the things that is contributing to your exhaustion is the fact that you do not have the spiritual life kind of motivating your activity. So understand that first point. Activity and busyness does not always equal life. Here's B. Resisting certain sins does not guarantee health. What is interesting about the church of Sardis is that it was located about 25 to 30 miles away from some of these other churches. They're all in the same region. And if you've been here the previous weeks, you'll remember that we said that some of these other churches had specific sins with which they really struggled. I mean, immorality and idolatry and tolerating sin and allowing false teachers into the church. And Jesus would write them and he would very clearly and very specifically call them out for that those specific sins. But when he comes to the church of Sardis, there's not a glaring sin per se that he calls out. He doesn't call them out for their immorality, does he? And he doesn't call them out for false teaching and allowing false teachers into the church. And he doesn't call them out for tolerate for tolerating sin. And I can almost imagine the church of Sardis, they knew the reputation of the other churches. And I can imagine them kind of sitting back saying, you know what? I'm glad we're not like those other churches. Church members wouldn't ever say anything like that, would they? I'm glad we're not like them. You know, we don't give into those sins like those other churches do. I mean, we don't tolerate that other stuff like those other churches do. So Christ looks at them. He doesn't call them out. They, they've been resisting this, their sins. But what he is saying to them is just because you're resisting certain sins, that does not guarantee that you are spiritually healthy. See, on an individual level, you can look at your heart and look at your life this morning. And you may be looking around saying, you know what? I've never committed the sin of those other people. And I'm glad I'm not guilty of that. It almost sounds kind of like the Pharisees, doesn't it? I'm glad I haven't done this, and I'm glad I'm not like those sinners. But the reality is, simply because you may be good at resisting certain sins does not guarantee that you are spiritually healthy. You can be resisting certain sins, but your heart is contaminated with the sin of pride and arrogance. It is possible to resist sins, but not be spiritually healthy. C. See on your outline. There is a distinction between what God sees and what others see. There is a distinction between what God sees and what others see. This idea that there can be a difference between reputation and reality points us to the truth that people see one thing, but God sees something else. And the challenge that you and I have and the challenge we have of living in an American culture and an American Christianity is that there is always the temptation to focus more time, effort and energy into building a reputation than 
building our relationship with God. Because what happens is we care what other people think, don't we? Oh, come on. We all do. I used to, when I was teaching uh, teenagers, I would always tell them that peer pressure was one of the most powerful things and it affected teenagers more than anyone else. You know what I've come to realize? It affects everybody the same, just in different ways. See, we have this tendency to strive to be something that we're not, but the point is God sees the heart. See, what we portray is not always reality. People see actions, God sees attitude and motives. People see reaction, God sees the heart. People see that you may give, God sees why you give. People see your service, God sees your pride or your humility in that service. People see that you sing and you praise and you worship on Sunday, God sees whether or not that praise and worship happens during the week. People see your level of morality in public, but God sees your level of morality in private. Understand that what people may see is not necessarily what God sees. And when we get to the place in our Christian lives where we are consumed with reputation, where we are consumed with portraying this, this aspect of spirituality and religion and, and that, that we want people to think that we've achieved something, and we become consumed with that, our focus becomes on those things that make them think we're good when the reality is we're ignoring the very thing that changes our hearts. And it is possible for you this morning, and it's possible for me, and it's possible for all of us to walk in here consumed with our reputation. But what you have to understand is that your reputation is not what you will stand before God and give an account for. When you stand before God in the last day, he's not going to look at you and say, hey, what do everybody else think about you? He's going to look at you and he's going to examine the reality of your heart. What God sees and what other people see is not always the same thing. In fact, many times it's not. People look at the outward, God looks at the inward, which leads to this last subpoint. This last subpoint is very important, and it, it's the understanding that we are accountable to God. See, when we understand that when Christ comes again, we do believe Christ is coming again, amen? When Christ comes again, you are not going to stand in front of these people around you and give an account for your reputation. When Christ comes again, you will stand before God and give an account for the reality of your heart. We are accountable to God. And even though there may be other levels of accountability in our lives, ultimately you and I are accountable to God and we will stand before God and we will give an account to God for the reality of our hearts, the reality of our lives, the reality of our minds. In that moment, it will not matter how much we have fooled everyone else into thinking how good we are. In that last day, that will be completely irrelevant. So if in the last day that is going to be completely irrelevant... Shouldn't it be somewhat irrelevant to us now? I mean, if we understand when Christ comes again, we are standing before him and giving an account for the reality of our lives and the reality of our minds and the reality of our hearts. And that is, it is to God to whom we are accountable. Should we not now be concerned with what is real, with the reality? Understand that there is a difference or can be a difference between reputation and reality. Number two on your outline. Because of this reality, there are times in our lives where we need to be revived. There are times when we need to be revived. Look at verse two and three. Be alert, literally wake up, be revived and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete 
before my God. Now understand here, he's telling them to wake up, be alert, be revived. All the while, they're busy and active. So again, let me just say, it is possible for you to be busy and active and serving and ministry and always have things on your calendar related to church, but yet still need personal revival. Because your activity publicly is not always a reflection of the reality of your heart. Does that make sense? And maybe this morning, that's where you are. Maybe this morning you are here and deep down you know that you need to be revived. You know that you need spiritual, personal revival. You need to be revived. You need to wake up. You need to be alert because right now you are spiritually apathetic. You're going through the motions. Yes, you're busy and yes, you're active. But deep down you know that there is something missing. There's a hole. You need revival. Verse 3 says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. So how do we pursue this revival? I mean, if you were here this morning, and honestly, not, not concerned with what everyone else thinks, but between you and God, as you analyze your heart, you analyze your mind, your life, between you and God, you know that you need revival. You know that you need revival. The question is, how do we pursue that? I mean... It, if we're sitting here and we say, okay, that's the goal. I, I know I need to be revived. How do we pursue that? Well, the text gives us four things that help us strive for that. Here's the first one. A is fan the flame. The, the phrase strengthen what remains is the idea that there is an, a little ember burning. And the way that you get that ember back into a, a roaring flame again is you begin to fan the flame. You begin to blow on it a little bit, hoping that that ember catches life and then a flame is there. This past week was Jonathan's fifth birthday. And so we had the birthday cake and the candles and we light the candles on the cake and he goes to blow them out. Well, as he blows some out and then begins to blow the other ones out, the first ones that he blew out start back again. And we start looking like, what's happening? And we go back and look at the package and we had the magic relight candles. <laughs> so this process of blowing out the candles took a little longer than what we expected. But whenever he would blow one out, if you looked at the candle, you'd see a little orange glow still in the wick. You'd still see it there. And what would happen is that as he was trying to blow out other candles... The, the, the wind coming across those other ones would make that ember spark back up and flame back up. And that's the picture here. Is that there's some of us and there's some believers that if we look at our lives, it's that little ember in the wick of that candle. And the way that you and I pursue spiritual revival, the first step to pursuing spiritual revival is that we begin to fan that ember a little bit. And just like with that birthday cake and that flame burst back up and Jonathan's eyes would get big and be like, this is so fun. And we're like, I just want cake. Um, in our spiritual lives, we have to understand that it is, it is possible to have a true, real faith in God. But to get to a place in our lives where the flame has died down to an ember. And the problem is many of us have become content with the ember. We've become content with this little orange glow deep in the wick of the candle on the birthday cake when, all, when we deep down know that it needs to be flames that are burning. The first way that you began pursuing spiritual revival is to fan the flame. The second thing that you do is you remember God's truth. You remember God's truth. 
Remember those things that you have heard, those things that you have seen. You see that in the verse we just read. It's the idea of that. Remember the truth of who God is. Remember the truth of God's nature. Remember the truth of what God has done. Remember the truth of the gospel. Remember the truth of God's grace. Remember how you have been transformed. Remember God's truth. Remember back to when you focused on it and you you you, you desired it. But then, see, don't only remember God's truth. Be committed to God's truth. Be committed to God's truth. It's the idea that you you chase after it. You long for it. You cling to it. So you're fanning the flame of that ember and you're, you're, you're remembering God's truth. Those truths maybe that you've been ignoring for some time. You're remembering those truths. You're becoming once again committed to those truths, which once we do that, it leads to this fourth subpoint. We repent. Now, the order here is crucial. Notice that Christ doesn't begin by saying repent and then goes through the progression. But repent follows a commitment to God's truth. You know why that is? Because until we compare our lives against the truth of who God is, the truth of God's righteous standard, and the truth of what God has called us to do and what God has called us to be, until we see ourselves in the light of God's truth, we will not see the need to repent. See, the truth is this morning, there's some of us here who need to repent. But it has been so long since we have compared ourselves up against the righteous standard of God's holiness that we fail to see how far we truly have fallen. So the reason God says, Christ says to fan the flame, remember God's truth, be committed to God's truth, and then repent is because it is not until you focus once again on God's truth that you will see your need to repent, to change your mind, to, to turn your ways, to turn back to God. See, I think very likely, and I said this in the, in the contemporary service this morning, I think it's very likely there are people here who In their heart and in their lives, they know they need spiritual revival. And they've just been sitting there watching this ember get just to fade. It's getting less and less. And they know they need to do something. But but notice how active this is. I mean, the beginning of the verse is strengthen what remains. Do you see how active that is? Is I mean, you're not going to, to do this accidentally. I mean, there's not one player yesterday at Hoops who sat down in the middle of the court and says, I hope I make a basket. I mean, that's silly, right? I mean, how are you going to do that unless you're striving for it? Well, how come we think that we can simply sit back and cross our arms and cross our legs and I hope I grow today. I mean, I hope, I hope I'm revived. I mean, it seems silly, doesn't it? See, spiritual growth... Spiritual revival is something that we pursue. It's something that we say that this is the goal. I have to be active. I pursue this. I long for this. I'm chasing after this. You will not grow spiritually by accident. And you will not be revived by accident. You have to aggressively pursue it. You have to say that this is my goal and this is my aim. And I know this is what Christ wants for me. So I will fan the flame and I will remember God's truth, the the truth of who God is and what God has done. And I will be committed to that. I will cling to that. And because I now see myself in the light of God's holiness, I will see how far I have fallen and I will fall on my knees and I will repent. That's the call. So if you're here and you're honestly looking and saying, you know what, I fall into that category. I need spiritual revival. That's that's the process. That's the steps. Let me give you number three on your outline. 
This is a sobering point. But understand that God will judge the dying church if there is no revival. God will judge the dying church if there is no revival. Look at verse 3 again. Revelation 3, verse 3. It says, remember therefore what you have received and heard, keep it and repent. But if you are not alert, if you don't wake up, if you are not revived, I will come like a thief and you will have no idea at what hour I will come. Now, if we stop right there, it will sound like, hey, just talking about Jesus coming again. But we dare not miss the last two words. And you will have no idea at what hour I will come against you. This is a picture of judgment. And this is to be applied corporately to the church. This is a letter to the church. So here's what he is saying. To the church that is dead, that is on life support, that needs to be revived. To the, to the dying church, if there is no revival, God will bring judgment. One commentator worded it like this. One commentator said that this is a warning that God would destroy the church at Sardis if there was no revival. But here's the temptation. Listen carefully. The temptation is to say, well, you know what? I hope the church experiences revival. I hope our church is known for life. I hope our church is known for a spiritual vitality. But here's the truth. Don't miss this. The only way we can have a church that is known for spiritually for spiritual vitality, is if it is filled with members who are characterized by spiritual vitality. And the only way we can have a church that is known as being spiritually alive is if it is filled with members who are also known as being spiritually alive. See, so many churches across our country think that they can have spiritually apathetic people in the church, but yet have a reputation of being spiritually alive. It doesn't work like that. The only way we can maintain, the only way we can guarantee that we are a spiritually alive, spiritually thriving, spiritually vital church is if you and I are committed to spiritual vitality. See, if we come in this morning and all, and if none of us care about the reality of our hearts, and none of us care about our spiritual vitality, and we're all okay with being in a place where we need revival, that our church will be a church that is okay with being spiritually apathetic. And we'll be okay with simply needing revival, but it will never be something we pursue. But if you are here this morning and you say, you know what, I want our church to be spiritually alive, used by God, our church to make a difference in the community, I want our church to be characterized by the spiritual life, the only way that will happen is if you and I, and if all of us are truly committed to having that same spiritual life. So here's the question this morning. If the spiritual life of our church was solely dependent upon your spiritual state right now, where would we be? I mean, if whether or not Christ judged this church... If whether or not Christ judged this church, if that was based solely on your spiritual condition and your spiritual vitality, would we be in trouble? That's a hard question to ask, isn't it? But the reality is the only way we as a church can avoid judgment that goes to a dying church is if we are all committed to spiritual life. And I'm not suggesting that we are a spiritually dead church. I'm saying the way that we guarantee we are not a spiritually dead church is by all of us being committed to our individual spiritual vitality. 
But let this point be a wake-up call that God will judge the dying church if there is no revival. He will simply remove his hand of blessing, his hand of protection, and that church will simply die out. Number four. A few things I want to explain with this. But number four, communing with Christ should motivate our faithfulness. Fellowshipping with Christ should motivate our faithfulness. Look at verse four and verse five. It says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes. Pause there just for a second. It's the idea that, that Christ is aware, even though the, the, the point of this letter is to address the spiritual apathy, he is aware of the people in the church who are not spiritually apathetic, that he knows those who are spiritually alive. They have not defiled themselves by compromising with error, comprom- compromising with apathy. He goes on to say, and they walk. And they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Look at verse 5. In the same way, the victor will be dressed in white clothes and will never er- and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my father and before his angels. Now, two things in these verses that I want to clarify. Notice that Christ is aware of the faithful believers, the ones who are characterized by purity. But notice that what their reward is is this future communing with Christ. Notice what he says again in verse 4. That they've not defiled their clothes, and the reward is that they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. The reward for the faithful life is communing with Christ. So the reality for you and I this morning is what should drive us is the reward of simply fellowshipping and communing with Christ. See, our, our materialistic society, I think we would agree we live in a materialistic age, or at least a materialistic world, country, materialistic society and culture in which we lived has passively taught us that the joy of heaven is all the stuff that will be there. I mean, it's passively taught us that what makes heaven so great is the pearly gates and the streets of gold. And I'm not saying those things will not be magnificent. But according to this verse and many verses throughout scripture, the joy of heaven is Christ. And what makes heaven worth being there is Christ. The reward of heaven is Christ. If you and I are looking to heaven and we're looking forward to everything else about heaven, but we ignore the fact that Christ is there, we are missing the most significant part of heaven. And is that we will forever be able to worship and commune and fellowship with the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is what makes heaven glorious. Christ is what makes heaven worth going. Christ is what makes heaven joyful. So as you think about heaven, yes, I mean, there's nothing wrong with thinking about all that Christ has prepared for us. But don't be tricked into a materialistic mindset that says, I can't wait to go to heaven to get the stuff. The stuff will not matter. Let me tell you, when you get to heaven, you're not going to be amazed by everything around. What you're going to be amazed is that you are sitting at the feet of Jesus. That's the glory of heaven. Does that make sense? So guard against that materialistic mindset. The second thing I want to clarify is found in verse 5. Verse 5 is, you see this phrase, I will never erase his name from the book of life. Some people have looked at this phrase and say, well, if he says he will never erase the faithful's name from the book of life, does that mean that it is possible that some names are going to be erased from the book of life? Is it possible that we will lose salvation if we're not faithful? The Bible is clear throughout that we are eternally secure in Christ. So let me explain what this is, what this is teaching. Some people look at that phrase and say, well, I guess it's possible for someone to be erased from the book of life. But understand the verse doesn't say that. 
It says that those who through their faithfulness prove the reality of their faith are eternally secure in the person of Christ. This verse stresses the reality of eternal security. It never says that it is possible for a name to be erased. It is a guarantee that those who are truly in Christ will never be erased. You are eternally secure in the person of Christ, not because you're a good person. And not because you come to church and not because you were baptized. You are eternally secure because you placed your faith and trust in Christ and what he has done. It is the work of Christ that makes you eternally secure. So that no man, John says, is able to pluck us from our father's hand. You are eternally secure in the hand of the father because of the work of Jesus Christ. So don't look at that phrase and say, well, I wonder if my name's going to be erased from the book of life. It never presents that as a possibility. It simply presents the guarantee that you, if you are truly in Christ, your name will never be erased. And isn't that wonderful news this morning? If you are truly in Christ, you are eternally secure, not because of you but because of the work of Jesus Christ. There's a very specific application point this morning. This entire letter is a call to wake up. Some of your heads just bobbed up now. You and I cannot be content with what people think our reputation. Here's the challenging part. Listen, some of us, are putting currently, right now, we are putting way more time, effort, and energy into making people think we are something that we are not. We are putting time, effort, and energy into building a reputation that does not reflect the reality of our hearts. And all of that indicates that we do not understand that we will stand before God and give an account to the God who sees who we really are. So in one real sense this morning, your reputation is meaningless. In another, another sense, it matters, but for the context of this message, when you stand before God, your reputation among other people is not going to matter. What's going to matter is the reality and the condition of your heart. So again, I want to ask you, change or die? I presented that choice at the beginning of the message and said, if, if you were presented with that option, would you change or would you just continue the same and just be content with your life ending soon. Well, according to one article I read this week, the odds are nine to one that you will not change. The author of this article based that statistic on a well-known study by Dr. Edward Miller, who is the dean of the medical school and CEO of the hospital at John Hopkins University. Dr. Miller studied patients whose heart disease was so severe that they had to undergo bypass surgery, which in itself is a traumatic experience, and some around 1.3 million heart patients have gone through this. But here's the interesting part of this. He said, many patients could avoid the return of pain and the need to repeat the surgery, surgery and the threat of an early ending of their life by switching to a healthier lifestyle. He says heart doctors all across the country sit in front of heart patients who have gone through these traumatic experiences and say, if you will change how you eat and change your exercise and do all of these things, then you will dramatically increase your chance of not having to go through this again. He said, if you were now to go and look at people who have had this bypass surgery two years later, 90 percent of them have not changed their lifestyle. And he says it's been studied over and over and over again. He says we're missing something. 
Even though they know they have a very bad disease and they know they should change their lifestyle for whatever reason, they don't. 90% never change their lifestyle. Now, I want to take that percentage to that physical dilemma. And I want us to think about that spiritually. So this morning, you've been at a checkup, so to speak. Where the reality of your heart has been examined. Not the reputation of your life. The reality of your heart before an all-seeing, all-knowing, righteous judge. The God of the universe. And this heart exam that we've gone through this morning has shown us, perhaps, that we're on life support. That if we don't change how we live and how we operate and the focus of our lives, that there will be a time when judgment comes. And if those statistics are true physically, I wonder if they're true spiritually. I mean, I wonder if 90% of the people who are faced with the reality that they need spiritual revival, I wonder if 90% of those people simply ignore it. I mean, I wonder if you're one of those 90% this morning to where you, you're face to face with the reality that you need a spiritual wake up call. You need spiritual revival. Not worried about your reputation, but you need spiritual revival. And this morning, as you look at your heart, you know you need it. But I wonder if you're one of those 90% that when you leave, you will simply ignore it, living the way you've always lived, failing to understand that you will stand before God, failing to understand that he sees the reality of your heart, failing to know that there's a difference between what God sees and what others sees, failing to understand that there can be a difference between reputation and reality. See, my prayer for all of us this morning is that we will honestly look at our heart. And there are some of us, there are some of us that if we look at the the flame that used to be, it's dwindled to an ember. And this morning, if you look really hard, you can faintly see that orange glow. And this morning, some of you need to determine to start fanning that flame. Some of you need to determine that you're going to pursue revival. That you're going to not just fan the flame, but you're going to remember the truth of who God is and the truth of God's word. And you're going to cling to that truth and be committed to that truth. And you're going to fall on your face and repent. See, don't be content with reputation. Pursue reality. Don't be content to simply try to fool everyone else into thinking that you've got it all together. Because God sees the real condition. So do you need a revival this morning? I mean, some of you may need to decide this morning to aggressively pursue that. And that's my challenge. We stand with me this morning, every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you have any questions or want to know more about having a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us online at hpbc.church. Please join us again next week as together we seek to know Christ and make Him known.